looks awesome, doesn't it? I don't know if you noticed or not, there are, uh, there are a lot of our people in that video, people that have taken Sockham here, and uh, so that's, that's cool, exciting to see. Well, um, yeah, just once again, we want you all to take Sockham. It's, it's um, kind of like the core of who we are here, what, what you experience in School of Kingdom Ministry, and it really gives you a taste, I think, for what God really intends Christianity to be. Not, not something that is like a more of a spectator sport, but something that we're all engaged with. And so in Stockholm, you learn about who you are in Christ. It's going to bring healing to heart wounds that people have. And what we've seen is that people have stood up at the end of Stockholm and said, I struggled with this thing since I was five years old. And, and, and really, I'm beginning to walk in freedom because of the things I learned in this class. As well as connecting you with other believers and really empowering you for a life-changing, world-changing ministry. So, today is uh, an anniversary day for, um, for our nation, for the world. It was 15 years ago that the Twin Towers were destroyed through a terrorist act. And uh, it was a, a dark day in our nation's history. Uh, a real turning point in our culture, in, in modern culture, around the world. And I, I would venture to say most of us probably have a pretty good idea where we were when we heard about uh, the towers going down. And, and in, in today's, uh, today's modern communication system, probably most of us actually watched it happen, or many of us watched it happen. And it's, it's not only a traumatic thing for our hearts and, and, our, and our spirits, but it, it generates culturally a lot of fear and anxiety. And, um, and we've, we've experienced, I believe, more fear and anxiety, not just in America, but worldwide. And, and I'm sure there are other factors involved in that, uh, that fear and that, that sense of foreboding as well. But there, it does seem like the world's getting darker, doesn't it? You watch the news, you read the report, newspapers, it seems like that. But here's the thing, folks. You and I as believers in Christ, are not part of those that shrink back from the darkness. We are not those that, that fall back in fear. We don't have to be anxious. In fact, Jesus said to us, we're the light of the world. And as the light of the world, our purpose is to push the darkness back, not to fear it. You know, darkness always gives way to light. And really truthfully, the darker it gets, the less light it takes to dispel the darkness. In, in, a, in a pitch black room, you light one candle, it'll light up the whole room. And so we don't have to be afraid of that. We can, we can walk in confidence and, um, and, and courage and strength because the Bible says, greater is he who is in you, that's the Holy Spirit in you, than he who is in the world. And the one that's in the world is the prince of darkness. And so even the, even the one who orchestrates the darkness, the one in you is greater than he. And therefore, we don't have to be afraid, okay? So uh, we, we, take this, we take this role of pushing back the darkness seriously. That's, that's why uh, something we're doing next month I want to share with you right now. Uh, we are uh, right now in the process of preparing a team to send a team back to Zimbabwe and um, I, I, before I go any further, I want to make sure you all have one of the flyers. So would the ushers come on down and 
pass those out. We have these that were uh, handed out at the doors. If you didn't get one, come on down to the, yeah. Put your hand, raise your hand, please. Yep, so just keep it up there until they get to you, okay? Down here at the front, Eric, yeah. If you didn't get one. Anybody else? Here, I want you to have one of these because I want you to take it home, put it on your bathroom mirror or on your refrigerator or someplace you'll see it, maybe your car dashboard, um, and pray for this team. If you, if you remember, a year ago in November, we sent a team, I, I led a team to Zimbabwe. There were three of us, Wilson, Cochran, Luke Hazelmeyer, and Sanjay Nelson went. And the purpose was, for Luke and Will and Sanjay to teach about our house group ministry, our young adult house group ministry, to teach about how that's formed, how it's organized, what the philosophy and values behind it are, and as well to take them out and to do street evangelism, where we pray for the sick and, 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 see, and, and release the power of the kingdom into that culture right there on the streets. And so we went, we had, we had a great time there, and uh, these guys taught and interacted with the other leaders there. And what we did actually took root. And there are five house groups in Harare, uh, Zimbabwe, which is the capital city of Zimbabwe at this point. Okay? That's something to cheer about, folks. These are groups that weren't there before. And um, they, they are taking an approach of planting these house groups might be able to call them house churches in that setting, in neighborhoods, because travel is hard there. And so in neighborhoods, and then they're going out and doing evangelism in their broader neighborhood areas. And people walk on the streets, and there are people out all the time. And they're going out and praying for the sick and and blessing them and collecting people for these house groups. But something like this, and I would look at this and I'd say, this is this budding move of God. There's something powerful, we believe, that's starting there. But it needs to be nurtured. And one of the guys that we know well, who's from Zimbabwe, who lives here in the States, he said, you know, this could, this could explode next year and be changing the nation, or it could be gone next year. And it needs to be nurtured my point. It needs to be blessed. And so the leaders there have requested that we send our team back and that we do more training and train some of the people that they've collected over the last year and and raise up more leaders. And so in October, we are sending a six-person team. Um, They Specifically, they wanted um, Luke and Wilson to come back. Uh, They didn't mention me. (laughs) I don't know why. I'm getting too old to do that anyway. Uh, I think it's great to send, send, these, other, send these other young adults. But um, Luke and Wilson, uh, Jen Cochran, uh, Will's wife, is going to go. Um, as well, Aaron Ross and Micah Turnbow and Derry Turnbow. It's a six-person team. Yeah, it's a great team, isn't it? Yeah. We had hoped to send Sanjay back, but he's in school right now and wasn't able to go. But um, they were all chosen for a purpose uh, to be on this team because they all bring something different to the mix. And they're going to add something different to what we deposit there and what we leave there. And, you know, we've been blessed so many times by having 
people come here, like Robbie Dawkins, Bob Hazlett was here last year, and others, they come and they deposit something here into the heart of our church, which just kind of stays and begins to bear fruit. And that's why we're sending them back to Zimbabwe, is because that, that new movement needs to be nurtured and blessed. They need more encouragement, more training, more illustrations of how you actually go out and, and do power evangelism and, and things like that. So uh, we're excited to say that. Um, we, we knew about this. That this trip came up kind of suddenly about six weeks ago. And then trying to form a team takes some time to decide who and to invite them and have them say yes but we as, as well, we've been watching the political situation in Zimbabwe, which is something we want you to pray about, that that would not interfere with the effectiveness of this trip. But uh, right now, it's, it's a green light, and we're planning to send them. Um, now, here's the thing. I want you to pray. Pray for them. Pray for preparation for the team. Pray that they'll be in good health, that they won't come under some spiritual attack that would keep them from going or anything like that. But pray also for the finances for this, because it does cost money. But it's money invested directly in the kingdom. And it's not like we're sending people to go someplace and just so they can experience another culture. There's already something happening there. We've already, we've already gone and invested something there that's bearing fruit. And so whatever money we put into this is going to have direct impact and fruit on the nation of Zimbabwe. And that's a nation that really needs God's light to come. So... Um, if we could just out of the general fund budget would pay for the whole trip, but we can't do that. Last year we were able to, to do that, but um, don't have that in the budget this year. So the, the cost for the trip is uh, roughly $19,200. That's airfare, everything. That comes out to about 3000 I think $3,200 per person, which for they're, they're going to be there for, um, I think the t- total trip is going to be like f- 14 days counting travel time. So they're going to be there for a while. So this is really, really economical, folks. I want to tell you that. It's a good investment of our dollars and our money. And um, we've asked the team members to each come up with half the cost of the trip. Pray for them that they can do that. But then we've asked leadership. We've also said we as a church body um, will we'll put out a call to everyone to give so that we can provide at least the other half, if not more, uh, of the money for this trip. And so that's what I'm asking you to do right now. Pray about it. Give sacrificially to this. This is an immediate need. It is something that will have a long-term impact for the kingdom of God. Lori and I are going to give sacrificially to support this trip, and, and I'm asking you to do the same. And um, so there's instructions on the flyer. You can, at this point, I know you can make a check out to the church and just write Zim Trip on the envelope or on the memo line. And uh, you'll, you'll get a tax deduction for it, and it will go directly towards this trip and help to, um, help to send these young adults down there to continue to change the nation of Zimbabwe. So let's just pray for a moment about that, okay? Oh, Father, we are thankful that we can see fruit. Uh, Father, thank you that we can see something happening in Zimbabwe, and and we get to be part of it. Lord, thank you that we get to be part of it. Uh, We just pray blessing on this team as they prepare to go, blessing on the team there as they prepare to receive us. And Father, just uh, protect and direct and let 
tremendous fruit come out of this. And Father, move in our hearts. We just, we invite you. We just say, move in our hearts to show us what sacrificial giving is so that we can give to this in a way that, that, that maybe they don't even have to provide half. Maybe they provide a third of their, of their costs or, or less than that even. But Lord, we want to send them well. And so move on our hearts and show us how to give to make this happen. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I hope you agree with that last part of the prayer. Okay, so um, we're going to get started in the message today. And today what we're going to do is address a couple of questions I've received. One of them has to do with heaven, and the other one has to do with reincarnation. So I thought it might be good for us to start off just by looking at how some other churches have answered, uh, handled difficult questions about heaven. Let's take a look at that, okay? Now, what we're going to show you right now comes off of a website. It was uh, produced by someone, and it's two churches across the street from each other, and a little debate they have about heaven and, and how they're carrying that debate out on their church signs that are on the street across from each other. So here's what happens. It starts off, Catholic church on one side of the street puts this up. All dogs go to heaven. Now the Presbyterians don't like that, so they respond, only humans go to heaven, read the Bible. Well, the Catholics came back, and they say God loves all his creation, dogs included. (laughs) Presbyterians, not to be outdone, they come back with this. Dogs don't have souls. This is not open to debate. So the Catholic Church, uh, they are going to respond now. Slow down the slides, okay? So the Presbyterians do not like that. They come back with this. Converting to Catholicism does not magically grant your dog a soul. Catholics, once again, not to be outdone, come back with this sign. Free dog souls with conversion. Now, the Presbyterians, once again, come back. They're trying to get the last word in. Dogs are animals. There aren't any rocks in heaven either. To which the Catholic Church responds, all rocks go to heaven. (coughs) I suppose we could vote on who. Who do you think won? How many thinks the Catholics won that little debate? All right, all you former Catholics. How many former Presbyterians do we have here? Who thinks the Presbyterians got the better part of it? Okay. All right. Hey, we have to tell you, that's all, that was all someone made that up. It, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, well, thank you. I'm glad you knew. Uh, so it, it was just fun. We thought it'd be fun to take a look at that. All right. So um, questions, real questions about heaven. And uh, the first one was this. What really happens when we die? What happens? And they mean by that immediately, do we go to heaven right away or are we, do we go into some form of soul sleep? 
you know, where we're, where we're kind of like not conscious. And then the third question is, will we know and recognize those who have gone before us as well as those who've come after us? Okay, good questions. Um, it makes me want to do a series on heaven, which I've wanted to do for some time, and we will at some point in time in the future. But, uh, you know, our goal really is to, to do our best to look for Bible answers. And when I'm giving you my opinion, I'll, I'll try to tell you that versus, you know, what I believe the Bible actually says. But um, what really happens when we die? Do you really see a, a, sh- a tunnel and a shining light? Is that really what happens? Or do, do you really see your grandmother in, in, the, in the room, you know, calling out to you? Or, or do you just close your eyes and wake up in heaven? You know, what, what happens? Uh, or is there some soul sleep? You know, if there was soul sleep, you wouldn't know it because you'd be asleep. And just like you go to sleep at 11 o'clock, if you sleep all night long and you wake up at 7, it just is time that doesn't seem to have been there. But I'd, we're going to ask that question too. What about soul sleep? Do you, do you go to sleep? And I'm going to say this first. There's some evidence in the Bible that angels greet us and accompany us. Uh, there's a passage in Luke 16 where Jesus tells a story. He's, he identifies a rich man, and then he identifies this poor man that used to beg at the rich man's gates. And he says they both died. And, and he says this, now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. So the poor man dies, and what happens? Angels come, and they escort him to his next destination. Now, in this case, it's identified as Abraham's bosom. Now, um, it's interesting to know what that means because that's different than what we typically kind of, in a popular sense, think of as heaven. You know, we think of heaven as being where God is and where the angels are and kind of like it's clouds floating around and stuff like that. Um, maybe you have a more refined view of heaven than that, but that's kind of a typical cultural view of heaven. And the, the presentation Jesus made in this story pictured what most theologians agree, and, and I agree with this, was the case prior to Jesus dying on the cross. And that was that before Jesus actually died on the cross, where sins were actually with finality paid for, Prior to that, people of faith died and went to Hades, which is simply the abode of the dead, which consisted of one place that was paradise, Abraham's bosom, and Abraham's bosom meaning, you know, like you're hugging Abraham, like you're close to him. Abraham's bosom because he was the father of the faith, okay? And, and compared to this other place of suffering. And so this place of paradise that they went to was a place that existed up until Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and ascended to heaven. This is just typical theology, and it's uh, actually supported in Ephesians 4.8. It says, when he ascended on high, he led a crowd of captives. And so when Jesus ascended to heaven, he took these captives and, and he took them all with him to heaven. And so the picture of that is that this place of Abraham's bosom, paradise, you know, all the believers up to that point in time that 
died and they went to paradise, when Jesus actually died on the cross, sin's gone now. They can go into the presence of God. And so he came, comes down and he gives them that good news and then he takes them to heaven with him. And by heaven, I mean directly into the presence of God. So we see there, we learn something about uh, the, 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 whole, the whole picture, but specifically that w- at least in some occasions when a person dies, angels escort them to their next, next destination of being in God's presence. Now, could it be that some people die and Jesus is right there? I, I suppose so. I mean, I'm, I don't think this is uh, exclusive, but it is one thing that, that can happen. Other things are left somewhat to mystery to us. But the important thing is to note that the believer, such as this poor man whose name happened to be Lazarus, goes to a good place. And, and that was the destination. Now, another question there's a question about soul sleep that we want to look at, but, but there's questions also about the body and what happens to my body. Am, uh, am I simply a spirit that happens to be trapped in this evil, bad body, and I won't really be free until I get rid of this body? Is that, is that, is that what's true? And a lot of religions are based on that type of thinking that uh, the body really isn't me. It's my soul or my spirit that's the real me. And the goal is to get out of this body so I can be free. And yet, when we really look at what the Bible teaches about this, what we're gonna see is that as human beings, our body is part of us. It's not like my body is separate from me and the real me is this inanimate Um, this non-physical part of my conscious being, my soul, my spirit, however you want to describe that. And in fact, the Bible teaches that we are three parts, body, soul, and spirit. And when God created man, that's how he created him, body, soul, and spirit. And he breathed life into this body, but the body was, he formed Adam from the ground and then breathed life into Adam. And brought about human life in that way. So human life is, it's intricately related to the body. And so the body is not like, right now we live with fallen bodies. We live as a result of the fall. So they give us trouble, sickness, pain, grief, desires and passions arise in our bodies that are partly due to the way we think wrong today. But, um, but, But just to make this emphasis that we were never created to be disembodied spirits. Okay, it's important we recognize that because otherwise we'll fall into some, some other uh, wrong thinking. But listen to this. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says this. While we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. And he says we prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Now, That passage could make it sound like I want to get rid of this body. And that's why I just shared what I did with you. We're going to look at another passage in a moment that clarifies that. But here, uh, a point to make would be, when I'm in this body, I'm absent from the Lord. But when I leave this body, then I go to be with the Lord. And that's the real point I want to make at this point in the message. That again, 
To be absent from the body is to be in the Lord's presence. I go to be with the Lord. It's very interesting, the language that's used here even. Um, it's translated various ways. The translation I chose was, uh, I'm at home with the Lord. But that little phrase, with the Lord, is a Greek phrase, pros ton korion. And I, I remember in seminary, one of my Greek professors hammering this into us. That phrase, proston, followed by a name, prostontheon, means in the presence of God. Prostontheon means, uh, uh, it means in the Lord's presence. But it is a figure of speech, which means face-to-face presence. That's what that means. It's like the prost is a preposition that means before God. It means right before God. God's here, and I'm here. And so just like we have um, figures of speech like, hold your horses. Okay, we don't mean uh, find your horses and pick them up and hold them. (laughs) You know, we mean something else, slow down. It's a figure of speech. And so they use that figure of speech, proston corion, to indicate intimate face-to-face contact with the Lord. And so when he says to be absent from the body is to be face-to-face with the Lord. That tells us that there, there is not this soul sleep. There's not this period of time where we are like nothing until we're awakened at the final uh, point of resurrection. And so um, as we look on here, though, uh, the body, it, it is an important part, as I've already shared, of who we are. And that's why in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, he states this very clearly. It says, we grow weary in our present bodies. Why? Well, because we live in a fallen world. We still, we struggle with sickness. Healing is here, but we don't appropriate it perfectly and in all of this. And, And he says, we grow weary in our present bodies and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. For we will put on heavenly bodies and we, we will not be spirits without bodies. And so Paul's saying here that it, it's the, 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 be, the best state of existence is not to be a disembodied spirit that has finally shed this burdensome body. He says that's not the goal at all. We don't want to be that. We want to be clothed. We want to be clothed. We want to leave this body and be clothed with a new body. Now, there are new bodies coming. That's the good news, okay? You know, if you're having trouble losing weight, if, uh, if the six-pack is gone and you want it back, but you just can't seem to find it no matter what, if your muscles are sore, if, you know, on, if your eyesight's failing, you are going to get a new body. That's going to happen. And when you get that new body, I like that idea, it's going to be a body like Jesus' resurrection body. It's going to be a body that is fit for eternity. In fact, we're going to read a verse here in a moment. We're going to put off this mortal body and put on an immortal body, just like Jesus had when he came out of the grave. And that is the body then that makes us prepared to enter into the eternal state of being in God's presence forever. Now, um, the thing is, well, let me back up here. Job in the Old Testament. You know, Job was um, a, a very old book written in the Bible. And long before people understood theology as we do today, Job had this incredible insight in Job 19. 
He says this. He says, after my skin has been destroyed, another translation says, although worms eat my skin, though worms consume my body, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. You get what he's saying there? Just leave that verse up there for a moment, okay? He's saying there, look, I'm in a deplorable state right now. Job was suffering and pain and anguish. And he says, okay, this body is failing. This body is going to disappear someday because it's going, to, it's going to decompose in the ground. Yet somehow, I am going to, in this very body, I'm going to look God eye to eye. I'm going to be face to face with my Redeemer. I'm going to see God in this body. Now the question would be, how would that happen? I mean, when the body goes into the ground and it decomposes and it's gone, how can that happen? And, and Paul gives us insight into that. Uh, Paul was a, Paul the apostle, early follower of Jesus. He spread the gospel throughout the Mediterranean world, just like the guys we're sending down to uh, Zimbabwe. He went to cities, taught, did something, then he would go back later, just like we're sending them back in order to, to build something uh, stronger into them. But here's what he wrote. He said, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we, those who are alive at the time this trumpet sounds, shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So what we see here, first of all, he says it's a mystery. Do you know what a mystery in the Bible is? It's something that you can't understand without revelation. And so it's not like a puzzle that you have to try to figure out and put together. In the Bible, the word mystery means Nobody understood this up until this point in time because it wasn't revealed by God to humanity yet. But now I'm revealing it to you, this, this thing that has been a mystery all this time. I'm telling you the answer to it right now. And he's saying this, that there's going to come a day, and other places in the Bible tell us this, that Jesus returns, and when the Lord returns, he's coming with the shout of an archangel, and the trumpet of God's going to blow, and in that instant, he says, the first thing that's going to happen is, the dead in Christ will be resurrected. And so those that have died, their bodies have been buried, planted in graveyards, in the sea, in other places, cremated, or whatever, their bodies are going to be resurrected. Now, that is, I mean, that is something that uh, goes beyond my ability to comprehend because these bodies, someone who died a thousand years ago, unless you were a pharaoh and they mummified you, your body's gone. I mean, it, it has been consumed by all the insects and the bugs and it's gone into the roots of the trees and everything else around the area that you were, that you were buried in. But it's clear that he says that it's the same body. And so the, 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 the answer that most theologians give and that I think is right is this, that God's going to somehow reconstitute the very body that that person a thousand years ago died with. That he's going to somehow, he's gonna, he knows where the atoms are, okay? <laughs> Even if they went into an apple tree and uh, someone else ate one of the apples. <laughs> he knows where the atoms are, Okay. 
And he's going he's gonna to get a handful of those atoms together, and he's going to recreate that body that that person was born with, except it's going to be glorified, and it's going to be fit for eternity, and it's not going to be sick, and, and it's going to be ready to live on and on and on and on without any, without any change to it. And so the way, that, um, the way we look at this then is that that happens when Jesus returns, all right? So let's say I die before Jesus returns. Let's say I die now. Paul refers to those, doesn't he, in this passage as sleep? We shall not all sleep. He's saying some people die in faith in Jesus, and others are going to be alive when Jesus returns. But he uses the term sleep here, and we have to answer that question. Does that mean that if you die before the resurrection happens, that from that moment on, you're kind of like sleeping, your soul is sleeping? And um, I don't know, you probably have really, really good dreams, but, um, okay. but your soul is sleeping. Now, here's, here's the thing with that. To interpret the Bible, if you find a crystal clear passage, and then you find another passage that isn't as clear, or could be explained as a figure of speech, or the language of expression, such as the sun rises. You know, the Bible says the sun rises. Well, we all know the sun doesn't rise. The earth rotates, and we rotate, and then that, that's what's really happening. But when he's talking about sleep here, it is the language of appearance. It's a figure of speech. And the other place where he says, to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. Proston Corion, face to face with the Lord. And that's as clear as it can get. And so that's the statement that governs our belief on this. And we look at this statement and we say, well, he's talking about language of appearance. People die, it looks like they're sleeping. And so uh, the idea that we, that we go into soul sleep, I don't believe is biblical, but um, the, the concept of us dying, dying before Jesus returns and our body stays here, but our soul, um, consciousness, spirit goes into God's presence, that leaves us with a problem because Paul already said we don't want to be unclothed. He said we don't want to be without our bodies. And so the solution to that problem isn't really clear biblically, but here's the solution that I think makes sense. God gives us some form to to inhabit for that period of time. And and even in the book of Revelation, it talks about uh, those that have been martyred for the faith and they were dressed in white robes and they're before the throne of God. And, And... and so there was some form that they had that they were able. So there's some interim form that we get that's not really us, but it'll do until the resurrection. And so we're not yet complete until the resurrection of Christ, when Christ returns and, and the great resurrection. And so the, the return of Christ and, and when the, the dead are resurrected. But, um, but we have something that clothes us so that we're not just disembodied spirits. That make any sense at all? Okay. All right. Will we recognize each other in heaven? Uh, boy, I just want to say absolutely. Um, Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus, the story Jesus told, they recognized each other. 
And as the story unfolds, there was conversation that happened and they recognized each other. In um, the New Testament, when Jesus was, right before Jesus took his final trek down to Jerusalem, uh, there's this dramatic event that happens called uh, the Transfiguration, where Jesus goes up on a mountain and he takes three of his closest apostles with him. And on the top of that mountain, it says that Jesus was transfigured. Literally, the word means metamorphosis. And you know what? Metamorphosis is where what's on the inside comes out. Now, he didn't, he didn't shed his body, but you know what happened? Light started coming out of every pore of his body. And, he, and, and the glory that he had as God's son just started to shine through him. He was, he was glorified in front of them. And there were two others that joined him there, Moses and Elijah. And the guys that were there watching Peter, James, and John, they all instantly recognized that's Moses and Elijah. Now, they hadn't seen pictures of Moses and Elijah, and they weren't alive in those days. But they're looking, and they're, they're recognizing these are two different people, and it has to be Moses, and it has to be Elijah. From everything we've heard, that's who this has to be. And, and so, I mean, there's other places in, in the Bible that we could refer to that would indicate that we will know each other in heaven. Otherwise, we would just lose our identity. I mean, we'd just be kind of like amorphous beings with no identity. Jesus said at one point that we were to use our money. Oh, this fits with, with Zimbabwe. He says, we are to use our money in a way that when we get to heaven, there are going to be people in heaven that are going to say, hey, you're that guy from Ohio that gave money to send those people to Zimbabwe, and that's how I came to know Jesus. When that team came here, I met Jesus, and I just want to thank you. I want to say thank you for what you did. Thank you for providing. Thank you for giving to do that. So there is recognizable. I mean, we're recognizable in heaven, and we're able to interact and all of that. So, okay, so we'll, all the questions we haven't answered or all the questions I've created, we'll try to deal with at some point in time. Yeah, I know. We'll try to deal with at some point in time in a future series. But just to know this, that when we die, we go into the presence of the Lord, that um, if, if you know Jesus, if, if you put your faith in Jesus, you go into the presence of the Lord, face-to-face intimacy with God, and uh, you, you more than likely have some form that he gives you while you're there so that you're not just a disembodied spirit. But when Jesus returns at that moment, then the resurrection of all the dead is going to happen. They're going to receive new glorified bodies. And those of us that happen to be alive at that point in time, and someone said, boy, if you're really lucky, you'll be standing beside a graveyard when that happens. (laughs) Those of us who are still alive when that happens, we will be just changed right on the spot. And and whatever extra stuff we have here is going to disappear. You know, whatever, I mean, we're going we're to enter into our glorified state with glorified bodies and be with the Lord uh, forever. So that's good news, isn't it? Yeah. All right. So the second question had to do with um, reincarnation. And it started with this, what exactly did Jesus mean by eternal life? And then it went into, I've been intrigued by the concept of reincarnation. And one of the questions, do we get to live life more than one time? 
uh, then I don't think this is on the screen, but less than 100 years in this world seems really short. Wouldn't coming back in another life give people more opportunity to receive Christ? Okay, so first thing I want to say is uh, whoever wrote that question, I, I mean, I, I might have their name on it, I'm not sure, but I don't know who wrote it as I stand here. But whoever wrote it, I love your heart for the lost, okay? I love that because most people look at things like this and it's just a curiosity or it's like a mystery show on TV or, or some other, I don't know what. But I love the fact that you're thinking through stuff from the perspective of the lost coming to faith in Jesus. And that's awesome. And so way to go with that. Now, as we look at this, um, we, we want to answer the question, what does he mean, Jesus mean by eternal life? And I'm going to answer it briefly, but first he means unending life in God's presence. All right? He means that. It's kind of like the future aspect of it, but not really the future aspect of it. We get it today. In John 10, 28, Jesus talks about his sheep. And he says, I know my sheep and I call them by name. And he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And so he's, he's saying, I'm, I'm giving them eternal life right now. See, the moment that a person opens their heart to Christ, at that moment in time, they receive eternal life. Because from that moment in time, their life is secured into relationship with God. And when they die, they're just moving from life with God here to life with God there. And so eternal life is a length of life, unending life in relationship with God. But the second aspect of eternal life is that it is a quality of life. It's heaven's life. It's, it's not just length of time, but it is quality as well. I mean, living length of time could be horrible, but living length of time with heaven's life is a blessing. And so he says in, um, in John 10.10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now there he's talking about heaven's life. You know, let it be done on earth as it is in heaven, that type of life. And so eternal life has to do with the length of life, eternal, but it also has to do with the quality of life, heaven life in me starting right now and then going on and on and on and on and unending. Even death doesn't stop it. So... Question is then, who goes to heaven? Who gets that eternal life? Uh, what, what is it? And uh, throughout the New Testament, it says those who believe. Believers get eternal life. Those who receive Jesus, it says, get eternal life. Uh, it says that those who um, open the door of their hearts or their lives and allow him in, that those are the people that get eternal life because we get Jesus you see, there's no life without Jesus. It's with Jesus that we get life. And so Jesus comes in, and then I get life because he's in me, and he is life, and, and he's secure in heaven for eternity. Now, God doesn't, uh, doesn't try to make this hard. He doesn't try to make this difficult. It's not like you, you have to be in a church building. You have to go to the altar. You have to get baptized. You have to get... You have to take communion at least once, or you have to say the, this prayer, you know, and, and then you go through a, a lengthy prayer. It's nothing like that. He makes this easy. It's faith. It's belief. 
It's looking at Jesus and saying, you really are the son of God. You really did die for my sins. It's believing that. The thief on the cross, what did he say? He, he said two words, remember me. When you come into your kingdom, but remember me. That's pretty simple prayer, isn't it? <laughs> How many of you know that's the prayer of salvation right there? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Uh, how about this one? Steve Shogren, who was here a couple weeks ago, he said he tells people, just look to God and say, here I am. Here I am, God. Here I am. Here I am. I, believe. I mean, that's coming from a heart of belief in Jesus, but it's just a simple, here I am. I want you. You know, here I am. And so it's, it's not like this huge, hard, complicated thing. You know, I think it could transition into, oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Or help me, Jesus. It could translate into that. That, that salvation is based on what Jesus did, not what we do. And it's just an expression. However we express our hearts open to him, and he comes in. And changes us, and we receive eternal life. In Romans 10, it said, don't say this person went to heaven and this one didn't. Don't say that. You know why he said that? Because it's righteousness that gets us into heaven. And if I try to determine that, and I say, oh, this person was so good, they went to heaven. Who am I? I mean, I have a skewed view of righteousness already myself. I mean, I'm all messed up when it comes to really understanding. And so who am I to judge because it's not that person's righteousness anyway. It's the righteousness of Christ. And so he said, don't say that. But he, he did say that it is belief. It is saying Jesus. It's, it's that, that is what is the difference. That's what gives us his righteousness so that when we die, we, we just step from life here with him to life there with him. Now, um, I mean, this always comes up when we think of family and friends, doesn't it? I mean, when we think of issues like this, I know for, my, for myself, I was thinking back to the days that um, right after I came to know the Lord, my grandfather Van Dyke, my mother's father, uh, was elderly, eh, not a whole lot older than me now, but in those days it was older. And he, he either had Alzheimer's or he had some dementia that he couldn't reason right. You couldn't talk to him. He, didn't, he couldn't carry on a conversation. But, but I spent a lot of time with him to relieve my grandmother. And, um, and I had just been saved. And man, I wanted to share the gospel with him and have him say the prayer that I had been taught and everything. But th- that was of no avail because he couldn't grasp it. He couldn't understand it. And so... Uh, one day I was with him and I found a picture of Jesus and I brought it to him and, and I said, Grandpa, who is this? And he looked at it and he, he looked up at me and he said, that's our Savior. And, you know, to me, I, I draw hope in that. I draw hope because God's gracious. And I'm not trying to, to, make, to make faith like I'm not trying to denigrate faith or the importance of commitment or the importance of walking out faith. Uh, what I'm trying to do here is lift up the goodness and the mercy and the grace of God. He doesn't make it hard, okay? Yeah, that's the Savior. Those, those, those could have been the words that, that were the expression of his heart of faith. That could, that could have been. And, um, 
And we never know what's in someone else's mind or heart at that last moment before they die. We just don't know. You know, people have heard about who Jesus is. They know who he is. And as they approach death, we don't know what's happening or, or what, that, that they're calling out, oh, God, or remember me, or here I am at that last second. And, and even, even, I read this article recently about people who survived suicide attempts. And this guy did a study where he studied people who had uh, attempted suicide by jumping off buildings or jumping off bridges, and they had survived it. And almost to the person, they said they regretted their decision as soon as they let go. They regretted their decision. And what what's to say, not, not to say that in, in those two, three, four seconds that that person fell, that they didn't cry out to Jesus. And, and if they did, just like the thief on the cross, they would be with him right now. And so there's hope like that that we, that we want to uh, focus on. But, and again, I'm not trying to trivialize faith, but to, to lift up grace and mercy and goodness. And, and we do believe that none of us should presume upon God. None of us should say, well, at that last second, then I'll tell you what, I'm going to just at the last second shoot off a quick prayer, and I'm going to practice ahead of time. Here I am, Jesus. Ah, oh, that's too long. Remember me, that's too many syllables. Uh, None of us should presume upon that, okay? Okay, we agreed to that. But at the same time, we look and we just say, oh, boy, God, I don't know what happened in their mind, in their heart that last second, but I know they knew who Jesus was. And I'm counting on the fact that they called out to him. So, all right, I'm not going to get to answer all these questions. We have other things to do today. But is there anything in the Bible that indicates that we get to come back and live again and again? Uh, and, and, and I have to say, I've searched it. I've read articles by people that want to try to prove from the Bible that reincarnation is true, and nothing that they say fits. Not, none of it is good, um, good hermeneutics or exegesis. And there's one verse that kind of nails the door shut in Hebrews 9.27. Very clearly, it says, it's appointed for man to die once. After that comes judgment. So you live once, you die once, and then what did you do with your life? Did you know Jesus or not? And so that's pretty simple. But um, th- this is also, there's a misunderstanding of the nature of man, and I've already talked about the fact that we are spirit, soul, and body, and we're not like spirits that can like inhabit different bodies. It's not like there's a whole bunch of spirits in heaven, and every time a a uh, sperm meets an egg, God says, okay, quick, get a soul down there into that. It's not like that. It's we derive our being from our parents. I derive my soul and my spirit from my parents, just as I do my physical being. My whole being comes from them. God created two people, Adam and Eve, and then he said to them, fill the earth with people just like you. And, and so the, the notion of reincarnation assumes that we are like these disembodied spirits, that that's what we really are, that we can be just plugged into whatever body, you know, and, and, and therefore live over and over and over again. And, um, and so that's just not, not, not good theology as far as an understanding of the nature of man. But um, again, the person that asked that question, I love your heart for the lost and uh, do pray with you that more and more people will get saved. But that's all the more reason why we've got to do everything we can to advance the kingdom. 
That, that's all the more reason why we've got to do that. And one final quick question as the worship team comes out, how's that? Worship team. <laughs> they hear me, they're back there. Okay, Revelation 21 says this. Yeah. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Okay, here's what's going to happen when Jesus returns. Not only do we get new bodies, but the earth gets a total makeover. Total makeover. And that, that, that's what we consider to be like the eternal state. The lamb's going to be here. He's going to be the center of it all. And with our new glorified bodies, we're going to live in this new glorified planet that's going to have trees and rivers. And I, the first one had dogs. So my guess is there will be dogs there. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. All right. Let's receive the offering right now. Okay. So if, uh, if you're on the left side of the road, if you pick up that basket... Yep, so pass that basket down. While that's, while that's happening, um, just so you know, any of you who are newer here, we don't receive any money from anyone else anywhere. There's, the vineyard does not support us. The, I mean, we give money to the movement, but um, there's no other source of income for this church other than what we give. Okay, so we're given to advance the kingdom and to push back the darkness and to love Jesus and to bring other people to know him. So let's give generously. And okay. So uh, if all the baskets are at the end of the rows, I'm going to say, let's stand up right now. Okay. And let's go into worship. Okay. Barry. Yeah. Mm -hmm.